This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, July 15th. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. On this episode, we will examine the defending World Series champs a few weeks ahead of the trade deadline. We'll see how things might be different this time around as Atlanta tries to address its needs and most specifically tries to figure out a way to preserve Spencer Strider's innings in a way where he would be available and effective throughout a postseason run. We'll take a look at the approach the Braves used at last year's deadline and see if any teams in the league kind of fit the type for making similar additions to possibly make a second half run. We'll talk about the full rosters for the 2022 Futures game, which were hilariously released about an hour after we stopped recording last week's episode. So awesome timing. Loved that. I thought we were going to get them eight players at a time based on the first eight players being released in advance. And then Keith has his penultimate mock draft, mock draft 3.0 up on the site right now at The Athletics. We'll talk about a few changes that have taken place there. But Keith, let's start with the defending champions. Not surprisingly, they're very good. They have more Fangraphs war than any team in Major League Baseball this season with their pitching staff. The rotation is fifth. The bullpen is first. We haven't seen a team win back-to-back World Series since the Yankees did it back in 99 and 2000, and that was part of a three-peat. It's at least very possible in this case. Atlanta is well-constructed. They're dealing with a couple of things right now. Ozzie Albies you know, had surgery in mid-June, so he's not back until at least mid-August at the earliest. But they weathered a storm of Acuna coming off the ACL. He is back. He will likely be better in the second half than he's been in the first half. And he's been pretty good so far in the first half. And as I looked up and down this roster, the one consistent thing that's going wrong for them is Ian Anderson not pitching well, taking a step back. But that's been offset by Spencer Strider being really good and Kyle Wright having a breakout this season. And on top of that, Charlie Morton is turning things around after a slow start. So This is a really good Atlanta team right now with a pretty short list of problems. What would you do if you were in the position of having to retool this roster a little bit more to get primed for that deep October run? Probably very little other than probably not dissimilar to what Alex Anthopoulos did last year, which is make a bunch of depth acquisitions. Obviously, these worked out spectacularly well for them last year. I couldn't, wouldn't predict a repeat of that. But I think ultimately that's where their where their resources are best applied at this point because they really have a glaring hole. I mean, they've gotten basically no production from Adam Duvall. That's hardly surprising. Um, and Michael Harris says, you know, after a hot start, he's cooled off because pitchers are taking advantage of the over-aggressiveness of a rookie hitter, but he's still providing some value on both sides of the ball, really. I don't think you do a whole lot with him. You know, same, not a ton of production from Marcelo Zuna. Could they get some... I mean, the, you know, heck, Duvall himself was just a, like a minor acquisition, like Eddie Rosario and Jorge Soler. These were guys, they gave up very little to go make some of these pickups. Just do more of that. Right, that kind of smaller acquisition because they don't have critical gaps right now. And I don't think 
I mean, we don't, I don't have a great read. I, I haven't tracked the trade market as much, right? Because I'm in draft mode right now. But what impact guys are even really likely to change teams? The name you hear the most is Brian Reynolds, who A, not really a fit for Atlanta, and B, just went on the injured list. Yeah, he's hurt right now. You look at uh, Cedric Mullins, who we threw out there as a maybe. I mean, the Orioles are playing a lot better right now, so they can probably talk themselves into just sitting with what they have, seeing how it plays out, maybe making a few upgrades. Maybe a team like the Orioles that's in an unexpectedly good position going to the break could follow Atlanta's model from last year and say, we're not going to give up long-term value, but we're going to patch a few holes and just see if we can win some more series than expected and hang around and play meaningful games into September. You could do that. I mean, that's a reasonable sort of thing because you're not hurting your long-term efforts and you're actually maybe drawing more fans and building up some interest and getting more prepared to be a good team or a better team in 2023 and beyond. I do think the the names you'd be thinking about as bottom of the roster, like either somewhat regular starters or even bench players, it's a lot of uninspiring names. It's guys like Robbie Grossman, who's having a brutal season for the Tigers. Uh, Michael Franco has actually had a really good season for the Nationals, he doesn't fit really with Atlanta because they're fine on the left side of the infield. Cesar Hernandez, if you want to get some second base depth until Albies comes back and then he becomes a bench guy. Cole Calhoun, if you're looking for another outfielder. Those are not exciting players. And then if you want to go to a slightly higher end, maybe you could find some guys like Charlie Blackman or Joey Gallo or David Peralta. Maybe Jock Peterson, the Giants fall out of it. But on the position player side especially, the names that stand out are not particularly interesting for the most part. I think it's really a lot more about are you getting an upgrade for your rotation? Are you going to be among the teams going after Frankie Montas or some of the other starters that are available? I don't think Atlanta needs to do that. I think Atlanta needs innings. So if you said they're going to trade for Zach Greinke and use him as part of a, a bridge to just get through August and September, something like that could make a bit more sense to me. Yes, I think that's probably all they need to do. It's funny. There's like some depth starter types kicking around. You know, Zach Davies, he's on the injured list, right? Like I'm thinking of guys who would potentially just, hey, they just need some innings so that they can back off. You know, Spencer Strider's not going to handle a huge workload the rest of the way. Just in case Kyle Wright needs to skip a couple of starts because he's having the best season he's ever had in the majors or minors really and but he's young he's going to end up you're trying to keep all these guys healthy and fresh for october too so if you can especially with the expanded playoffs right you can sort of take your foot off the gas a bit in september and if you can pick up a back-end starter to just i don't make six starts between august 1st and the end of the season otherwise handle some mop-up duty that would probably be a much better use of their prospect capital in terms of trades, than trying to go out and make a huge acquisition that would actually only be a marginal upgrade over the guy they're replacing anyway. And I just don't see them... I, some of these clubs probably need to do something more significant. I don't think they're one of them. These clubs meaning contenders or would-be contenders. And Atlanta also has a few players currently hurt that could come back and have some kind of impact too. Mike Soroka maybe gets back before the end of the season. There's someone that is fresh and gives you high-quality innings and maybe even has a significant impact into the postseason, Kirby Yates making some progress, really good before going down with Tommy John surgery. One more arm for the bullpen, which you'd love to have just more depth, even though things are going exceptionally well so far for that group. But I'm with you that the bench is probably the weak spot. William Contreras has been a really pleasant surprise. 
Nice story that he's also an all-star this year, along with his brother Wilson. Surprised to see him in the starting lineup for sure, but nevertheless, I mean, that's the one spot where they're they're pretty well covered. It's, it's the infield-outfield depth that's a little bit lacking for this team, but these are very easy problems to solve, relatively speaking. So barring something you know really unforeseen here in these next few weeks before the deadline, it shouldn't be an overwhelmingly splashy move uh, that Atlanta has to make to keep pace and possibly pass the Mets. I mean, I think on paper, you could look at this team and say Atlanta is just as good, if not better. The X factor in all of this is Jacob deGrom. I mean, is there a more pivotal player right now from a health perspective that we're looking at who's going to have a massive impact on a division race and, and maybe the entire playoff picture in the NL? Walker Bueller? Yeah, Walker Bueller may be about as important, but... And the Mets have done a lot without, they've done it with without DeGrom all season, right? That's been the amazing part of, of yes. this team. They're a top 10 rotation without him and with a lengthy IL stint for Max Scherzer, which is not, that's not the typical script that we've seen from the Mets when things go wrong in the past. Clearly, they're going to be among the teams making some upgrades as well. So this is going to be a great race, as people have said time and time again. But I'm looking at this Atlanta approach from last year. You mentioned some of the names, Rosario, Solaire, Duvall, Jock Peterson, Richard Rodriguez. I know it didn't work out for him. And they gave up a combination of players that they really don't miss at all. I mean, Bryce Wilson might, maybe is the best player they gave up at the deadline last year. It hasn't really gotten any better yet. He's- right. Hasn't happened for him in, in Pittsburgh. But this is a pretty interesting model because I think with expanded playoffs, especially the players that might help you on the margins, the guys that could be one or two war guys over a partial season they're freely available, especially from teams that wanted to shed payroll late in the year. I think that's a lot of where this value came from last year was non-contending teams being happy to just let Atlanta take on remaining payroll on these players. Yeah, that's I mean, you mentioned Joey Gallo, who's obviously been a disaster for the Yankees, but I don't believe there's any reason to think he's actually done. I think it's temporary. He wouldn't be the first player to go to New York and struggle in a short period of time and then leave and get better. I don't know that that's actually it. It's anything more than just a bit of a small sample size. Actually, I think like a lot of people thought he'd really benefit from that being his home ballpark as a left-handed pull power guy. Um, I get maybe the, maybe in his case, it doesn't matter. His power is so good that that park actually wouldn't help him. Um, you know, would the Yankees just say, here, just take take Joey Gallo off our hands? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, again, I don't really track this market, but that's the sort of player that clubs, whether you're Atlanta and you're just saying we don't, we don't really feel the need to give up prospects or you're a team that, you know, there's some contenders out there with not great farm systems that don't have a lot of prospects to trade or have a few, you know, if you're Milwaukee, you have a few really good prospects at the top of the system. You're not trading Jackson Churio. You're probably not trading Tyler Black. Um, and then the guys below that aren't going to get you a major difference maker somewhere, you know, whether it's rotation help or in the lineup. So you shop around and say, well, we'll just take the rest of this guy's money for the rest of the year and clear the roster spot. Not, the, not that the Yankees need to save money, but they would probably rather just say, just take this guy off the roster. We don't even need someone back. Just, just take – Give us the broster spot and the payroll back and we'll go acquire somebody more significant. Yeah, Gallo, I thought this would work out better for him yeah. with the Yankees. You can put me in that group for sure. I, I think it's it's strange because he's such an unusual player. We just we don't have a lot of guys in our game, even with strikeouts being up 
He's got a 37% K rate for his career now. And yeah, he hits the crap out of the ball when he hits it. But this type of profile never ages well, no matter how much raw power this profile contains. I really wonder if if this is just the end for him. I don't think it's a New York thing. We saw some signs of this even back in the pandemic short in 2020 season. The slash line looks nearly identical during that season with the Rangers as to what he's doing right now. The only real difference I see is that Gallo is swinging at more pitches outside the strike zone, which is just a disaster for a guy that has such a small margin for error production-wise to begin with. This is a guy who in the minors too, there was some of that. And then he'd make some adjustments and tighten up and move up and then have to go through that same adjustment process again. Unless there's some reason to think he's just lost some bat speed, which for guys like him, that's fatal, right? You're, he's He has always danced on the edge of a contact rate that any real loss of contact, any further loss of contact makes him just not a viable major league player. If that's what's happened, then yeah, he's done. He's just young for that. It's not unheard of. Just be awfully early for that to have happened to him. I also think there may be a readjustment. In this case, it's returning to something he's shown he could do before. I'm not ready to pull the plug on that one just yet because he has shown that skill. There's always going to be swing and miss. There's going to be swing and miss in the zone with him. It was there for him in high school. He's one of the only high school players I can think of where I actually saw him swing and miss at high school pitching in the zone and then still turn into a good major league player. It's because he had, I still think, the most raw power I've ever seen on a high school kid and and could do other things as well. So I'm not really ready to say, oh, this is done. You know, it's not like he is a one-trick, unathletic player where, you know, those guys you expect, well, when it's gone, it's gone. And if a guy who's less, a guy who's unathletic starts to show signs of, aging, basically, earlier, I'm less surprised. Joey Gallo's a really good athlete. I mean, heck, he could have some pitch sitting 95 in high school. Like This guy's got other abilities, so I'm much more loath to think that it's just over. It could be. Plenty, you know, obviously, plenty of guys are done young. I was thinking Greg Jeffries, who was supposed to be a superstar, and by 30, he was basically finished. Um, so... It could be, but I would probably err on the side of thinking there's some, there's another uh, bump up for Gallo before it's over. It just maybe it's not in, not going to happen in New York. Yeah, and I think with with Gallo, there'd still be teams willing to take that chance. For the Yankees, it's probably more about just having a, a fourth outfielder that you trust more on a per plate appearance basis. Sure. While you know Gallo can do exceptional damage when he connects. You want someone who comes into the game, takes a really good plate appearance, and is more likely to get on base and mm-hmm. do something that fits in that role a little bit better. And it, I guess if you're worried about the luxury tax, moving Gallo, he's a $10 million player. Maybe you get a cheaper fourth outfielder and you can add something else, add more depth pitching-wise, whatever it is you're looking for mm-hmm. at the deadline. So it could be part of a, a series of moves that the Yankees are willing to uh, say it didn't work out with Joey Gallo between now and the deadline on August 2nd. 
Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra-flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. As far as other teams in the league go, that you could see taking this play-the-middle sort of approach, plenty of, of teams kind of bouncing around. Orioles are the surprise. We talked about them yesterday on the 3-0 show. The White Sox shouldn't be in this position. They're 43-45 and 45 entering play on Thursday, which is just mind-blowing. The Guardians live in this space. The Rangers have actually kind of crept into this conversation. You know, the Phillies are probably a team that could look at what Atlanta did last year at the deadline and say, we're going to get Bryce Harper back later this year. We've got a good starting rotation. Our bullpen's not as bad as it's been in past years. It's even kind of good, at least in terms of our A relievers go. Maybe this isn't the year for us to go all in, but we're clearly a win now team. Maybe we should be a team that tries to take on some of these uh, these underperforming veterans that aren't going to require much capital at the trade deadline. Yeah, I feel like the Phillies almost have to, right? It's a bad farm system. It's a, an expensive, older major league team. It's going to – if you're not going in this season, when are you going in? Like Now, yeah. this year, next year, that's it. I mean, I don't know exactly when it ends. Maybe there's one more. Maybe tack one more year onto that. But you very much have to be in the mentality of we're going all in now. Um, they're the team that's probably the most like I don't know that there's a major acquisition they're going to make that's going to change their fortunes, but they should be in buy now mode. I mean, they're one of the teams we've talked pretty heavily about um, them possibly in the market to take Kumar Rocker in the draft. I know we'll talk draft later in the in this conversation, but as a guy where you take him and just say he's 22, he pitched basically three years at Vanderbilt in the SEC one of the best schools in the country, the best competition in college baseball. He didn't pitch this spring until June. He went to an indie league. He could maybe come to the majors this year and help in a major league bullpen. Phillies are one of the, the few teams that A, would consider that, as far as I can tell, and B, could actually really make an argument for that. 
that we might get 20, 30 good innings out of this guy, especially if we pitch into the, if we play into the postseason, he's able to continue to pitch effectively for us. So I think they're the, of all those teams you mentioned, that's the one where they, they have to just be, nope, we're all in. We're absolutely all in because once they say we're not trying to contend with the current major league roster, it's a, it's a long and not pleasant rebuild coming because I think they've got the farm systems better this year. I'd say it's even better today than it was six months ago, just given some development of guys in the system. But they are still overcoming a lot of things that went wrong under the honestly under the previous two regimes in the front office. Yeah, and you've got a lot of guys in this core: Schwarber, Hoskins, Castellanos. So those kinds of players don't age particularly well. Nope. So aside from the fact that this is the you know the Harper beginning part of the contract still relatively early and all that you want to try and win while you can and you have you have the starting pitching that's the thing about the Phillies that I think people underrate sometimes is that they actually have good enough starting pitching to be a dangerous playoff team the flaws they had going through the season were they're a bad defensive team and we don't know if they have enough in the bullpen bullpen is better you could still add to that get a few other pieces to round out a few flaws, and suddenly you're the last playoff team in the NL. All you got to do is get there, and they're dangerous, dangerous enough to win uh, if that actually happens. I always want to bring our friend Eric Carabell on when we talk Phillies because yeah. he would tell us, <laughs> no, it's not going to happen. Just understand, it's just not going to happen. He'd, he'd talk it all down uh, immediately, but I think they could justify it. I think the Giants could probably justify it as well. They're 45 and 42 entering play today. We're not seeing that same, that same level that we saw from them a season ago. They look more like people expected them to look last season now. Mm-hmm. The Padres look a bit better than them. The Dodgers look head and shoulders better than the Giants right now as well. But the Giants are kind of in that play the middle mode just because you said this at the beginning of the season. They're, most of their prospects are not coming up to help right now. They're probably not going to have to trade some of their best prospects to upgrade the roster. And we know under Farhan Zaidi, this is a team that is always trying to find spots on the margins to get better. So this could absolutely be an active team at the deadline, even if none of the moves they make are particularly splashy. Now, they've also outscored their opponents by a pretty wide margin. They're actually underplaying their Pythagorean record by three wins, which in in a half a season, that's nothing. That's random variation. But also says to me, probably a better team. Than the record indicates, they're forty-five and forty-two. They're about fifty percent to make the postseason. I just pulled up Baseball Reference. You can pick your site for odds. Um, yeah, I think they're. It's exactly it. I mean, one that's just their philosophy anyway is to go try to get better on the margins anywhere they can, um, and I think that's probably all they need to do. Just simply rolling forward with a lot of the personnel that they already have largely with the personnel they already have is probably going to just produce better results the rest of the way i mean they could use some catching help right i don't know who that is who's available in terms of catching up it's one of the hardest positions i think to try to upgrade on the fly but whatever you think of joey bart long term it ain't working yeah it's not you know if they were going to make a splashy move Mm -hmm. wilson Contreras would be a great fit there there's a handful of contending teams where you look at catcher and Mm -hmm. you say hey that's actually a weakness and it's it's a weakness in houston where they don't they don't need martin maldonado to hit they got enough other guys that hit. the yankees have jose trevino doing the same thing right now Mm -hmm. you could put wilson Contreras on those two teams and it makes them better but with the giants it seems like it would have an even greater impact and it would give them another middle-of-the-order bat that can be in there every single day. I mean, the platooning and mixing and matching they do works remarkably well. 
You know, I, I, they get more out of Lamont Wade Jr. and Luis Gonzalez and Yermin Mercedes and Tyro Estrada and Austin Slater. They, you know, they they just do so much with oh, yeah. guys like that, and it's a it's amazing. It's amazing to see them do that. At some point, they're not going to only do that. They're going to have star power on this roster again. But uh, I think until they reach that point where that younger core comes up, this is the model. So if they did the splashy thing, Wilson Contreras is the best splashy thing they could do. Do you think they could make a trade for Contreras without giving up the young talent they truly want to keep around for their next young core? Yeah, I mean, these clubs made a trade last year, right, for Chris Bryant, where... The Giants didn't give up nothing, but they did not give up any of their elite prospects. And I don't think they have to give up a Marco Luciano, um, who's on the injured list now, but it remains their best prospect. Or Kyle Harrison, who I wrote about, I don't know, what was that, a week and a half ago, um, who's their best pitching prospect, one of the best left-handed pitching prospects anywhere in the minors. I don't think you have to give up one of those two, nor should you at all give up either of those two. I mean, if they're looking at an in-season acquisition, especially for a short-term boost, you're not giving up either of those guys. They could probably give up a lot else in the system and not terribly suffer for it, um, particularly if they thought, you know, if it was a you know two-win upgrade for the rest of the season, you'd at least consider it. And what they did last year was Caleb Killian, who's had a cup of coffee in the big leagues, but he's a good depth starter prospect, and Alex Canario, who's pr- always been kind of tools over performance. And just got to double A this year and has shown power and continued to struggle with just being on base and with some pitch selection. Prospects of value, but not not sure things, not guys the Giants absolutely were counting on at some point. Depth, depth prospects who are still good prospects, but you know, not top 100 guys in the industry and not guys where you're at the moment you trade them, you think, oh, that one's really going to hurt, right? That's what you're. It, that's sort of your thinking, right? The Giants have, I, I mean, as I see, I think it's really two guys in particular, Luciano and Harrison, where it's, we're not trading those guys at all. They would discuss a lot of the other guys. I mean, you wonder, would they, I'm sure, I, would they trade Joey Bart? Yeah, that's what I was just going to ask you. It kind of seems like you've seen enough of him in your organization now where you could say, we couldn't make it work with him having him in the org for almost four full years now just a little over that so we can't figure it out obviously you're you're not getting anything close to the value you're not getting number two overall pick type value it's not just joey bart straight up for wilson Contreras. it's bart and someone else to get that deal done but if you're the cubs looking at their system do you feel like they have a young catcher who's even close do you do you want to take a flyer on bart and just see in the next year or two if he at least can take a small step forward at the plate. I mean, defensively, at least he's a good defensive catcher, right? So you, you at least have you have that part covered in the short term. Yeah, the report's funny. I just talked to a scout last week who'd seen Bart recently and just said he just looked kind of disinterested or maybe deflated. I mean, it may be a situation where Bart just needs to be somewhere else. I was never a huge Joey Bart believer. I always thought he was going to be a low OBP guy. I didn't think that the hit tool or the plate discipline were really good enough for him to be, say, the second pick in the draft or an elite prospect. And 
I don't think anybody really seriously believed he was going to be the next Buster Posey, but it just didn't help, right? For it to be a high pick by the Giants and then getting there as Buster Posey is retiring, like that, none of that did him any favors. That wasn't fair. He's a power over hit, really good defensive catcher. That's an everyday player for a lot of clubs. But right now he can't even be that because he is just so lost at the plate. And it started to carry over a little bit to the defense, maybe sending him somewhere else where you hate to sell low on a prospect, but it might be that his value is not getting any higher playing with the Giants. Maybe you consider that, especially if you're getting the catcher back in return to fill that spot. And yeah, it does leave the Giants with a little bit of a a long-term question about who catches because Patrick Bailey, a catcher they took in the first round, I think it was one or two years after Bart, and he was two years after, has not worked out at all. He got a back injury last year, looked like he was better in fall league, but he's just been awful this year. So it would create a long-term void for the Giants, but it would certainly help them substantially in the short term, in the most obvious place, I think, on the current roster to make an upgrade. Yeah, I think it would make a lot of sense. And maybe a guy that ends up sticking around because they have that long-term need. Just seems like it was yesterday when people were saying, how are they going to deal with Posey and Bart and Bailey? How are they going to make the pieces fit? Man, time flies. I always feel like, you know, people are like, you can never have enough pitching. You can also kind of never have enough catching. Yeah. Most other positions, you're like, all right, you know, we, we don't need six shortstops. You're going to have to move them to other positions you think of trading those guys. But catchers, they get hurt. They just don't pan out. That's a, it is underrated as the, the, you know, the second hardest job, I think. I think being a pitcher, just because of what's required to maintain, to keep yourself healthy, and then obviously all the work you have to do between outings, especially as a starter. But catcher, you're expected to be a hitter. You're expected to be a productive hitter, just like all the other hitters. And you have the full-time, you know, by itself, job of being a catcher, managing a pitching staff, managing game calling. You don't do it by yourself, but a lot of that responsibility falls on your shoulders and your knees, especially. And the wear and tear of that position is huge from just going into the crouch umpteen times a game to their collisions aren't as bad as they used to be, but they still happen. That position just, it wears you out. I believe that catchers can be slower to develop. Like I try to give catchers more time in the minors. And and in the case of Bart, I'm not saying he's done. Not saying he's never going to work out. Catchers can develop more slowly. And I think it's just because we ask more of them physically and we ask more of them mentally than basically prospects at any other position. And in that, I would include pitchers. I know there are Cubs fans that listen to the show who are probably saying, but we want Wilson Contreras to stay long term. Well, you can still sign him long term as a free agent this winter. And having Joey Bart as part of the return wouldn't stop you from doing that because you can share playing time with those guys between catcher and DH if it works out. What do you think? take some wear and tear off of Contreras's legs, great. DH him a bit. Contreras is 30, right? You're not signing him to a five-year deal. Most catchers are not still good catchers well into their 30s. You'd probably rather... I'm not saying you can't bring Contreras back. You can get Contreras back on a short-term deal. Fine. But I don't think you're giving Contreras five or even more years than that, given his age. You'd rather... You'd love to have him. Maybe on too short to, you know, if it's two, three year deals because you wait and see and make sure he holds up, great. But to me, I, given where the club is this year, Contreras' contract status and his age, you're thinking trade him. And then, you know, you can explore bringing him back, but definitely cash that in now for something. It doesn't have to be Joey Bart. We just made that up. Right. Just spitballing as like, hey, wait a minute. Maybe you want to get him back plus something else because you don't have a, a catcher 
in line to replace Wilson Contreras right now. Yeah, and if you're and if you're the Cubs, the idea is, look, I, I'm almost the wrong person to ask, right? Because I've always been the low man on Joey Bart, like at least compared to you know MLB or Fangraphs or whoever. But still, like it's a buy low opportunity, and you're the Cubs. You can get a guy like that and wait. You can get a guy like that and say, hey, Joey, the, the job's yours. The rest of the season, don't press, don't worry about it. All we need you to do is show up and play. And if there really is some, you know, if he's really been putting in less effort in San Francisco, and I just, it's hearsay from another scout, someone I trust, you know, come in, look, we just, just show up and play hard. That's it. Don't worry about results. This job is yours. And this is going to be your job into next season too. Maybe that's what he needs to get out of that. I have to produce, I have to, I have to do something today or I'm going to get demoted. I have to do something today because we're trying to get to the postseason. That's not unheard of. And I don't think it's a, really even a question of like bad makeup or anything. I think to press in those situations is human. And he may go somewhere else and feel a little bit more comfortable and become the player that his advocates have always thought he would. I was just thinking too, Joey Bart had to replace Buster Posey twice because Posey opted out of the 2020 season. So then there was extra pressure on Bart that year. And then, of course, with Posey yeah. retiring, it's like, oh, you get to do this again. Try to replace a franchise mm-hmm. legend and likely future Hall of Famer here and, 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 and learn the job. You know, learn learn the job while you do it. Obviously not an easy situation to walk into. Thinking about the Wilson Contreras uh, long-term deal, I wonder if the Yasmani Grandal contract from two off-seasons ago is probably a guide. Four years, $73 million for Grandal. I think Contreras maybe gets a little bit more, but that's probably the the range that you're thinking about if you're a team that is looking for a long-term catcher. Plenty of risk, of course, taking on a player at that age, at that position. Let's get to the Futures game, Keith. It is actually going to be live on Peacock, and if you are of the satellite radio type, uh, SiriusXM is going to have it as well. It's on Saturday, 7 o'clock Eastern, 4 Pacific. They will re-air it at 9 a.m. Eastern. That's 6 a.m. Pacific, as I'm told, as someone who lives out here on MLP Network. So if you'd like to get up really early and watch baseball on a Sunday morning, you will have that on the West Coast. But we discussed the limitations of a showcase game a little bit on last week's episode of this show. Now that you've seen the full rosters revealed, who are you excited to get a look at, either for the first time or just someone you haven't seen for a while that's going to be appearing in this game on Saturday? Yeah, and I did write a piece that was a little bit more focused on who's not there because there are definitely some guys missing. Um, you know, I've never seen Corbin Carroll in person. Really? Um, yeah. Um, he was, I was basically advised not to see him his draft year because everyone said, you're going to fly it to Seattle. And if you're lucky, you might get two swings against horrible pitching because uh, he played in a private school in Seattle. So all my, and I've been, a, I've had him ranked highly forever, but it's been based on other scouting reports and video and the very limited data we had. And so far looks very good. Um, He'll be there. I think he's clearly a top five prospect in all of baseball. Jordan Walker would be in my top 10. I will do a re-ranking of the pro prospects once we actually get through the draft. Um, He'll be there. I still have not had a chance to see him in person. Oh, by the way, I did try to see Corbin Carroll multiple times in spring training this year. And every time I was at the Diamondbacks complex, he wasn't playing for something. Oh, he was with the big club. Oh, we just gave him a day off. So that was awesome. Um, I've seen Diego Cartaya, but would love to get a fresh look at him. It's been two years, I think, since I saw him. Um, George Valera, I've seen one and a half games so far. He'll be there. Good to check in on Jason Dominguez. I almost feel like now that a lot of the early hype has died down, we can sort of look at him 
more objectively. It's always hard. You know, we're, we're humans. We're subject to all kinds of biases. And when you hear that, you know, he's nicknamed the Martian and he's the best prospect ever to come out of Latin America. And hey, guess what? He's just a regular kid too, right? I think he's really good. But we can look at him without some of that now, without thinking, oh, he's going to be in the big leagues by the time he's 19. Well, it turns out that wasn't true. And that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with him as a prospect, but it's just I, I like getting fresh looks at guys like that once the hype has died down. Um, I haven't seen Yuri Perez before. He was a breakout guy last year. Um, figured at some point would probably end up driving or even flying to get to see him, but he's going to come to me. It's just these are one-inning looks, two, two three at-bats if we're lucky since it's just a seven-inning game. Please, Major League Baseball, make this a nine-inning game again. We don't ask a whole lot. This is really silly. You're trying to get everybody on the field. Why would you make the game shorter? You can make the game longer. You could say, oh, we'll play 12 today. We got the yeah. pitchers. Let's play 12. Uh, I got to sit there for that. I'm fine with nine. Nine was good. They got to have all the commercial breaks. You can't run it like yes. a minor league game. Well, it's the stupid softball game is the other thing. Oh, we got to do the softball no, game you don't. afterwards. <laughs> no, you don't. As it turns out, you really don't. No one's going to miss that. I will also be curious. One more name I'll throw out there. You know, I said Jack Leiter by, look, by hype name draft position last year he belongs he's not been good this year his last outing was a disaster i don't think he got out of the second inning um you know just a glance right these are not i I don't go there to do full scouting reports on guys i write up what i see but trust me i'm not going into the futures game seeing one inning of yuri perez and Oh, this is my entire opinion on the guy. I think readers, certain readers have gotten that impression because I try to write about what I see and, you know, make, here's what I saw. Make a, you know, a clear objective statement of what I saw on the players and think, oh, he just based his entire opinion on player off of two at-bats or one inning of work. That's not what I'm doing. Um, but at the same time, it's great to just see deliveries, bodies, Swings. Hopefully, you know, if uh, I'm flying in that morning because I have to do a mock draft the night before. Um, but if it all works out and I get there and get to see some or all of batting practice, great. Get a bunch of swings out of these guys. It's just more information. It's not a full look, but anything I get to see, especially for players I've never laid eyes on at all, it's always useful. And one thing I will say is like, if you, if I, you know, I'll be sitting with the scouts behind the plate. And I see 10 pitches in Yuri Perez. I can't tell you what type of prospect he really is, but I'll have something on the delivery, right? These guys generally don't massively change their deliveries, even just because they're throwing one inning when they're used to maybe throwing six. You get a pretty good sense of what that is. Their bodies certainly aren't different for the Futures game. I don't think anybody's doing PX90 for a couple weeks just to look good to be on Peacock. But yeah, that stuff, that's the useful stuff to me is just go and get, Quick looks, and then there will always be a follow-up opportunity. I'll always get a chance to see these. It's easier to see guys as they get to the high minors for a lot of reasons. A lot of them will end up in fall league too, which is probably where I do the most concentrated work I do on on prospects. Um, and it it just as a general rule too, you know, listeners probably know I live on the East Coast, and that means in terms of player I see in person, prospects I see in person, it's concentrated towards the Eastern League, what is now the Sally League. Um, the Carolina League, the ones I can drive to just because it's easier because I'm not flying constantly. I'm not going to spend, especially at the cost of flying right now, 
Uh, so I drive. I saw, I actually have written it up. I saw Heston Kirstad and Marcelo Mayer for a couple of at-bats each on Sunday. And then, of course, Mayer got hurt and Kirstad um, didn't play the second game of the doubleheader. And then they promoted him to Aberdeen. So I'll go see him again. But so I always look at these rosters. It's like, okay, who are the West Coast teams sending? Because those are the prospects I'm just less likely to see organically during the season. And I think most of the guys I just mentioned, that's true. Jordan Lawler got added late. Great. Glad to see that because he was drafted last year. I think played two games, got hurt, wasn't playing anywhere when I saw the Diamondbacks in spring training this year. Um, you know, he was a one-one type of talent going into the draft last year, and but he hasn't played a whole lot. So same thing. Just a hey, quick look. Yep, I've seen this guy once, and now I will follow up later by going to see him uh, in real games. And also, it just gives me more to talk to scouts about. Okay, here's what I saw. You've seen this guy for 20 at-bats. Tell me what you really saw. Because what I got was just, you know, essentially a screenshot, not a full video. Yeah, I'd be really curious from people that have seen him, you know, what's going on with that walk rate with Jack Leiter? But that's just bizarre. Over five walks per nine so far this season. ERA's over six. It's just been a really rough pro debut for him. And I would have expected him to handle double A pretty capably and maybe have a shot at debuting this year. Obviously, that's off the table. Uh, at this point, but the other guy that's really interesting on the pitching side in this game is Taj Bradley. I think he's he's interesting just because that we've seen the Rays take really good pitching prospects going all the way back to David Price and mm-hmm. utilize them at least as bullpen arms going into a playoff push. And I think Bradley's been so good at Double A, a 170 ERA, a .91 WHIP, 88 Ks in 74 and third innings. The walk rate this year from Taj Bradley is better than it's been at any minor league stop so far, and it's never really been bad in a problematic sort of way. So he's amazing so far. 21 years old, just turned 21 back in March. Do you think Bradley is going to be the latest in a growing list of raised pitching prospects who comes up from the high minors to make a late season impact and maybe a relief role? I don't know if they would do that with him. They're so conservative with their pitching prospects. I think Taj Bradley's a stud. He was on my around the middle, I think, of my top 100 going coming into the season. I got to see him last year when they came through Wilmington, as it turns out. And he is exactly what you want a projection high school pitcher to look like as he's on his way up, right? He was the classic, really athletic, good arm, good delivery, doesn't throw super hard, not very advanced as a pitcher yet, but everything works. You can see how, as he fills out, he will start to throw harder. We'll get him into a part, you know, raise a very good at player development. We'll get him in. We'll work on refining, you know, some of the commands and the off speed stuff, like little things, the gradual improvement. I feel like it's a little bit of a, a bit of a lost art in terms of everyone wants, no, let's take the high school kid who throws 98. Let's take the guy who's ready now. And hey, you know, it turns out those high school kids who throw super hard, occasionally they work out. A lot of them just get hurt. I mean, Heck, even Grayson Rodriguez, who's really not had it till this year, had not had a hiccup at all coming through the minors. He had developmental things he had to work on, but he'd never really been hurt. He, he threw hard in high school. He continued to throw hard all the way. Now, it's not an arm injury, so it's not the same thing, but suddenly he has a, it's an oblique or a lat strain. I think it's an oblique that's kind of just wiped out his season. Um, even the best of them, sometimes it just doesn't, you know, they don't move through the minors at a steady, uninterrupted pace. And I love seeing Bradley was also like a fifth round pick, not a first round pick. So it's a huge difference here. That is old school. That is how what we used to say 
the college guy is the is the college guy is the more polished guy and he should move quickly through the minors. High school, these are teenagers. We're willing to let them develop on our watch instead of saying, oh, they have to be finished products the day of the draft. That's not a criticism that Grayson Rodriguez picked either. It's just he was one who came to mind as a kid who who threw very hard in high school. And so that's why he was a first rounder. Those guys aren't necessarily always the better prospects in the long term. They're better on that day. And it's much easier to turn around as a scouting director, go to your boss, say, I took the kid who threw 98. What do you want from me? Yeah, the guy that has major league stuff or closer to major league stuff yeah. already because you're not you're not projecting all that development in. Right. Makes sense. Physical development, mental development, all of it. I mean, this is coming up again this year where I, you know, I still right now I have to do one more mock. This is going up on Friday. My last mock of the year will go up on Saturday morning. And um, there's not going to be a lot of pitchers in the first round, not a lot of high school pitchers. And I think what you are going to see, because I only go picks one through 30, the, the true first round, then there are extra picks, some compensation picks for lost free agents and some picks for uh, the competitive balance lottery. So teams start to get to their second picks, 31 through, I think it's 39. And I bet you see some high school pitchers come off the board there because teams say, okay, now we got one in the bank, right? We took somebody in the first round we feel really good about. Now we'll expand a little bit, take on a little bit more risk. Maybe we take that high school kid who's 90, 92 right now, but we like the delivery, the athleticism, the fastball shape, you know, something about secondaries, make up whatever it is. You're willing to take on that risk more with subsequent picks. And Bradley, to me, he's just, I want to boost those stories a little bit too, to say, no, 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 this, this still works. There were things we all have, you know, we've all criticized history of drafting, a lot of things that we did wrong, taking those athletes early in the draft who couldn't see a breaking ball. Um, turns out there were some things that did work and for good reason. I think one thing that, you know, we can have all the data in the world. It doesn't change the fact that 18 year old still an 18 year old. Generally they're, They've got a lot of physical and emotional development ahead of them. Yeah, I think that's a, a very safe statement about the 18-year-olds <laughs> in general. Uh, last uh, Futures game-related question for you. Zach Veen, the Colorado outfielder, having another good season. He's at high A right now, 77 games so far, showing some pretty good pop, 11 homers, 38 for 40 as a base stealer. He ran a lot last year, wasn't quite as successful as he has been this year. And I'm just curious if his ceiling as a, a player has ticked up a little bit with what we've seen since he was drafted ninth overall by the Rockies in 2020. Yeah, I have seen him. I actually, he was the last player I think I saw before the world ended mm. um, in Florida. It was him and Carson Montgomery who ended up going to school. Carson saw Carson Montgomery and then drove over to see Veen and ended up getting two nights of Veen against Dylan Cruz, who also went to school, who took his name out of the draft, went to LSU and is he's probably a top 10 pick next year. Very advanced college bat. Not a lot of defensive value there, but he's just produced. He hits the ball hard and he hits it a lot. That's going to get you drafted reasonably high. Um, those two guys were facing each other in high school. And I've heard some mixed things on V. Nothing bad necessarily, but that he's definitely changed. Um, and people are questioning, well, does he, is he, because Veen in high school showed a lot of power. He was very, it was big tools. It was a great swing. And it was, well, you know, is it more, maybe more power than hit? And now the knock I've heard on him this year is, well, I don't know where that power went. I'm like, no, 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 this is fine. We're, I'm good with this. Like, we know he's got power. Work on hitting. The power will still be there. And it's not like he's not hitting for any power, right? I just pulled it up. His ISO is almost 200 points in high A, and he's 20. But he is making a lot of contact. He's getting on base at a good clip. He is showing 
enough power for right now, I'm, I'm fine with that. The power is going to be there. I would much rather see a guy who flashes you plus power as an amateur spend time focusing on hitting, working on becoming a better hitter, because that power is always going to be there. It's not like he's, guys don't lose power. You could change your swing for the worse, I guess, but that's not but one, that's not the case with Veen, and two, that's I can't think of many examples of that. Of guys who went from having 60 or better power as amateurs and then not having it in pro ball. You know what? As I say that, there's one guy I can think of. It's Ryan Sweeney. I'm sorry, White Sox fans. <laughs> I know. Too soon, probably. <laughs> First rounder. He is the, the starkest example of a guy who uh, the biggest delta between the power he'd show you before the game and the power he'd show you in the game where it wasn't just, oh, he can't freaking hit, right? That wasn't it. He just, he changed his swing in the game. He was 70 raw at five o'clock in the game. He had to, I think he had to change to be able to make contact and he would make contact and the ball wouldn't go anywhere. And it was like, oh my God, what are you? Kept thinking it's going to happen at some point, right? Eventually, but he couldn't do it. But he's an exception, right? The fact that he jumps out to me also shows what an exception he is. Yeah, I guess some part of that could also just be how hard is it to really evaluate what a hitter can do in batting practice? Like when you think about the way BP is thrown, I know there's a lot that's changing with that over time, but hitting BP, groove pitches in BP is not quite the same as hitting in a game. Yes. Well, this is why I like seeing BP for hitters, for prospects, but it doesn't determine everything. It's a great supplement to game swings. You might go see a game, you might only see two or three swings. You might see swings. Often I go see swings and, you know, oh, all he saw was pitches up because it's one game and they decided that was the plan or they didn't decide that was the plan, but the pitcher stinks and that's all he could do. Does the swing change? Does his back, do his, how he uses his legs change? What happens when the, especially when the ball, you know, to me, it's the biggest thing is the ball up versus the ball down. Can a hitter cover both? Remember um, Jordan Danks. Oh my God, I'm killing the White Sox here. This is not deliberate. That was another guy where it's like, it doesn't work. He can't get up and down. He could not adjust himself. He was tall in the way his hands worked. And I think really, honestly, his all his his back arm, especially. He, if he had to get down, he had to collapse his, really, his whole like torso down to his knee to the point to be able to get the bat down. Otherwise, he was basically just trying to scoop the ball. And I was like, I saw him as an amateur. I'm like, I, I don't think that's going to ever work. And it, and it didn't. Because if you could, you could go high and low on him and he either had to change his swing or just give up on one of those two. So to me, that's something I can get out of BP that's valuable. Yeah, I think Jordan Danks played in the first fall league I ever got to go watch it back in ah. 2008, maybe. Mm-hmm. The the one where William Rosario was just crushing home runs. That was, oh my, God. <laughs> that was my first fall league. It was a lot of fun. Sure. Yeah, I thought he was amazing. I was like, oh, this guy's yeah. crushing the ball. It's falling. Oh, the parks are kind of small <laughs> and the pitching's not very good. So lesson learned. But uh, Mock Draft 3.0 up right now. You do have one more coming out on Saturday. Obviously, the Orioles have not tipped their hand yet because it's not 10 minutes before the draft, as uh, you've been pointing out going back several months now. Brooks Lee is the name that you have on the line next to the Orioles as of right now. Looking at the first round, what big shifts have there been since version 2.0 of the mock came out? Um, not a ton, I don't think. I think the themes are pretty consistent. The names in the top six or seven have been pretty consistent. They're getting shuffled around, but you're seeing Drew Jones, Jackson Holiday, Tamar Johnson, Elijah Green, Cam Collier, Brooks Lee, 
you know, Lee could go one, he could go all the way to seven or eight. There's just a ton of uncertainty. Some of this is because Baltimore doesn't share what they're doing. And just to be clear, they they don't have to. There's no expectation that they need. They don't have to tell us. They don't have to tell anybody what they're doing. It's nice if they do as a courtesy maybe to tell Arizona, for example. We're taking Jones. You can take, you know, the Holiday or Johnson or whatever. But they don't have to. Um, I don't see a lot of pitching. I, there might not be any pitching in the top 10. That's very likely. Um, I would still say if I were betting, I would lean slightly towards no pitching in the top 10, which I've pointed out a few times has not happened since 1979. Um, the Royals and Rockies, are the only teams I've really heard at all significantly on someone in the top 10, but I think that would, on a pitcher in the top 10, but I think that would also be a second choice for either of those clubs. And then I think once you get to the back of the round into the twenties, that's where the run on college bats is going to be. Not every team necessarily, but several teams down there are just saying, we're going to go college bat, assuming the right guy gets to us, and then open it up maybe after that. I mean, I had one team say to me, we are looking for a college bat we like enough to take at pick 20x. Nice. One other thing I'll throw out there that I don't know, you know, Atlanta and buying essentially through, um, you know, underperforming prospects getting that extra pick at 36 i think it is from kansas city really opens up what they can do at 20 and atlanta has done really well in the draft uh since alex anthopoulos took over in years where they don't go nuts in the first round in fact they've gone under a little bit with some first round picks and then spent savings later on in the draft that's how vaughn grissom who's kind of the big big breakout prospect in their draft this year that's how he ended up with them i think is an 11th round pick a little bit over slot because they got creative and they spread the money out, took a bunch of higher ceiling high school guys later in the draft. I love that for them. I think it's a great philosophy. It's a very scout centric philosophy too. Got to have a lot of good scouts, trust your scouts, trust your process to be able to do that. But to back to your question in the first round, I don't think I, I, a lot of it changed. Individual names changed, but nothing dramatic. And honestly, I'm working already obviously working on the last mock. There are changes. The player I have with Baltimore right now, is not the same. It's not Brooks Lee. But they're all just little shifts. I'm not seeing, not hearing about massive changes. And if there's a big surprise coming in the first round, there might very well be. It's probably going to be a big surprise to me on Sunday night. <laughs> I haven't heard it yet. The names I've heard, other than hearing like Tyler Locklear, who I've mentioned in mocks, or Spencer Jones, like with each of those, there is one team in the 20s that really likes that player. Okay, sure. Sure. We could see something like that, but I'm not betting on it. And if there's something else like that, some other player like that, I haven't heard it yet. You mentioned that trade that Kansas City made with Atlanta and yeah, the 35th pick went back to Atlanta. Drew Waters, um, a struggling prospect, stuck at AAA. A right-handed starter, Andrew Hoffman and CJ Alexander, an infielder, was the return that the Royals got back. Do you like that trade from Kansas City's perspective? Do you think they were right to buy low on Waters? Or do you see anything in Hoffman or Alexander that gives you reason to believe that they got good value here? I don't. I've never been a Drew Waters believer. I think he was made my top 100 once three years ago. And after that, he revert, basically reverted back to the player I kind of thought he was. Um, it's a really poor approach. And it's tools. I get it. And the Kansas City is very tool centric. And you want to take that guy in the draft? Absolutely. This is a guy who's really failed now in a year plus in AAA. And it makes me very skeptical, especially them. They've just not had success. Um, 
turning guys, a lot of guys like that around. Now, the one thing somebody even pointed out to me, you know, what if Alex Umwalt, who has worked wonders with their system as a whole, um, and made, you know, took MJ Melendez from a guy who was probably a non-prospect in a ball and turned him into a guy who's a viable major league regular. And I think Nick Prado is on that same path. Could he do that with Waters? Waters is older, further up the chain. I guess it's possible. I mean, that would certainly be the ask, right? And if they improve Drew Waters, if Drew Waters has a, even like what I call a major league average approach, I mean, that's a really nebulous thing to discuss. But then he's got a chance to be an all-star. So that part I get. I love getting that guy when he's 20, when he's lower in the minors. And I feel like when you pick, because they also pick ninth, they they just give up a lot of flexibility in this draft. Maybe I'm overrating the value of, of the draft, but I feel like for Kansas City, especially where they need to get kind of a lot of value into the system at this point, because you know last year's draft is the early returns aren't good. I'm not giving up on the draft at all. But they've had a lot of trouble with you know their the college pitching group that's gotten to the majors hasn't panned out. And now last year's pitching group is not looking great so far. So this was a chance to get when you have that extra pick and the extra $2 million in pool money, you can do a lot. You can get really creative. And they did. They did last year get very creative. And I feel like it just it's that much harder without the extra pick and the extra money. Yeah, I guess there were other ways to potentially acquire Drew Waters from Atlanta that didn't require giving up the 35th overall pick, right? You could still have mm-hmm. bought low without giving that up. I think that's probably where I'd be critical of it. If you see something you could fix, great, do it because there's power, mm-hmm. there's speed. If you could unlock it, that's great. He becomes a regular. He becomes an answer for you in center field. One uh, L that I got to take before we go. Christian Bethencourt acquired by the Rays. How about that? Wow. I think from the literal day that I mentioned how surprised I was that he was getting first base and DH playing time in Oakland this year. From that day forward, he's done nothing but hit the ball hard and make a case to be on a contending team. So I will take the giant L on the A's <laughs> taking the flyer on Christian Bettencourt. They at least turned him into something of long-term value. Yep. Yes, they did. Amazing. I still don't think he's very good. I wish he pitched more. Yeah. Well, do a little bit of everything. Nice bench guy to have if you are a contending yeah. team. So good for the A's in this case that they are able to do that. That is going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Baseball Show. You can find Keith on Twitter at Keith Law. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. If you want to read Mock Draft 3.0 or the upcoming 4.0 version, get a subscription to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash baseball show. That gets you in the door for a dollar a month for the first six months. That deal probably won't be out there forever, so get it now if you have been putting it off. Lots of great content on the site around the draft, around all-star festivities, and, of course, for the playoff push as well. Enjoy the beginning of the All-Star festivities this weekend. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Monday. 